Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Welcome everybody, Daniel Reuters here from Humanly. Today I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Ali Ajaz. Dr. Ajaz, welcome. Oh, hi Daniel, thanks for inviting me. Thank you for coming. I saw you on a podcast uh, with a gentleman that I've had on this podcast, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Uh, I think it was Sons of Liberty. Radio. Sons of Liberty. I was going to say Sons of Anarchy, but that's the TV show. It's uh, Sons of Liberty. And yeah, what you were saying on there really caught my attention. And I just thought I got to speak to you and pick your brains about a few things. And uh, I'm really excited to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, and a great honor to be part of uh, a star-studded guest list that you have on your uh, amazing podcast. So thank you very much. Not a problem at all. Uh, I don't really know a lot about you. I've seen um, a few things that you've done in the past, but I'm keen to learn a little bit more about you. Um, you're a psychiatrist, forensic psychiatrist, and you're practicing in London. Uh, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in medicine and what you're doing now of course yes uh, thank you so i'm um i'm a psychiatrist in london i'm uh, i live here and i work here and i've trained did most of my medical training in london at, at king's college london and uh, i specialized in forensic mental health uh, as, as you mentioned and that's really looking at the interface between law uh, and uh, psychiatry so working with uh, uh, offenders uh, people going through the criminal justice system, kind of risky, dangerous people who also have mental health problems. I'm, I'm working as an expert witness, going to court and uh, being challenged by uh, solicitors and uh, barristers for my views. Um, so it's quite fun and, and challenging at the same time. And I work most of my career in the National Health Service that we have here in England um, until uh, start this year when I left uh, fully uh, for my job. Uh, we can go into some of the details around that. Um, it was mainly down to the the stance on the on the COVID uh, jabs, and now I fully work in my own private practice. I'm uh, in my kind of uh, small, intimate office um, that that I uh, see my own patients. Uh, really working on people's uh, uh, mental health, but for me, the focus on brain health. So my, my ethos is that if we can improve the health of people's brain. We can improve their mental health. We can change their lives. Uh, and I'm re really enjoying that and getting a lot of success using uh, lots of different techniques and uh, therapeutic uh, interventions. I also work as a, a senior clinical lecturer at uh, medical school here in London, and I've done that for about 10 years now. Uh, so I do have an interest in medical education and teaching students, and that's very important to me. Uh, alongside doing a research degree, which I'm in the middle of, uh, looking at the link between um, radicalization, extremist behaviors and, and mental health. Uh, and that's uh, an ongoing um, process. I'm hoping to write on my thesis this year. Fantastic. You worked for the NHS? Correct. Yes. What are your thoughts about how they've handled the last few years? It's been very challenging. I think there's uh, the, the the challenge that the NHS first uh, faced. It, it was clear that it, we weren't up as a as a nation and a service to dealing with, I guess, the influx and the concerns around people's health that happened um, 
uh, I, I think one of the, the issues I've had about the NHS is the way that it's managed, um, how efficient it is, the layers of uh, unnecessary middle management, bureaucracy. Uh, and I think we saw all of those, those things contributing to, uh, I guess, the panic um, and the, the, the knock-on effect on people's kind of health, I think, is trying to manage a pandemic situation. Uh, but then there's also trying to manage the health of the wider uh, population. And I think what we're seeing now, we're seeing the the aftermath of um, uh, poor management kind of being quite single focused on one thing uh, at the cost of uh, the health of people moving forward. So uh, lots of people are not uh, having uh, uh, procedures, not having operations, not getting referred uh, quick enough. And we're just seeing a big lag um in 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 the quality of health service here in the uk uh, and it's really forcing either a lot of people just to suffer uh, and wait or other people to go into the private sector and try and pay for their own treatment which uh, as a as a nation here in in the uk it's it's a relative relatively alien concept that we're used to having uh, free health care at, at the point of uh, contact and it's really been eroded quite significantly and and I think it could have been avoided by the, by the way things were managed. Why did you decide to leave the NHS? Was there something that in particular that drove you to want to leave or was it just a combination of things? Uh, yes, well, the, the main uh, the main uh, issue was around the jabs right uh, for the, for the coronavirus. Um, so we had this mandate that was trying to be pushed through. Um, by a government to say that if you're an NHS worker, you need to be double jabbed in order to carry on working in the health service. Mm. Um, I was not happy with the way uh, the, the jabs had been introduced, the science behind the jabs, the lack of safety profile, um, and also the, the risk benefit uh, analysis of uh, risk of dying from coronavirus versus the risk of taking something that's been untested, unproven, um, and a new novel technology. And I, I do risk assessment uh, for a living. So I, um, in my forensic mental health work, so I, I, I work with uh, a lot of people who've committed different, but equally horrific crimes, murder, rape, assault, serious assault. Uh, and part of my job was to integrate people who'd done those things uh, into the into the community, so it's quite a, a high pressure, high risk um, uh, a job that I was doing, and, and a risk assessment was a big part of that. But all of a sudden, with these uh, jabs, I was told that my risk assessment for myself um, was no longer valid; that I had to just listen, um, and uh, so that annoyed me, um, but it also disappointed me considerably. Uh, and then I started to find that. Uh, my job role was beginning to be curtailed. So there were certain places I couldn't go. For example, I couldn't see some of my patients in their own homes or the um, uh, uh, institutions that they were living in. And I had to do things remotely or ask other colleagues to go. Um, and so I was feeling the, the squeeze um, and this kind of pressure to try and take the jabs and, um, uh, and you know, everything will be okay. Um and I tolerated that to to a certain degree. And then uh, when I tried to speak out to my seniors, uh, so senior clinical managers in the NHS, um, 
you know, they're all doctors by training. Uh, but no one was interested in the science. No one was interested in the ethics of introducing something like this, but then also forcing staff, forcing loyal employees to take something they didn't want to take. And a lot of my colleagues didn't want to take the job, but they did because they have a family, they have, they have a mortgage, they need a job, they need to pay. But w- what I was hearing from my seniors was um, really that they were reveling in this coercive practice. Uh, and it and it and it became very clear to me that it, it was untenable for me to continue to work uh, in the type of service that that does that to people. This kind of oppression, and, and not only does it, but also revels in it. Um, so it was it was very clear for me that I, that I had to go, but I wasn't going to make it easy for them. So I wanted them to sack me, but at the last minute, they they uh, the government did a U-turn on the mandates, um, and my employers expected me just to carry on as as normal. But I said, look. You know, uh, this is it's, it's, it's not going to happen, and um, I I need to leave. You know, I need to leave because because I can't work in this environment with these uh, with these types of people. Um, so I so said I'm going to leave on the uh, on the first of April, which was uh, the day the mandate was going to be enforced fully. Uh, but then they said to me, "Oh, you can't just leave just like that. You need to give your three months' notice, otherwise we'll refer you to." Your, the GMC, which is the governing body for doctors. So there's a bit of a hoo-ha around that, um, right. but I managed to negotiate the way out. And, um, you know, that was, gosh, about seven, eight months ago now. Okay. You haven't looked back since? That's fantastic. No, not at all. Not at all. I think it's been very liberating. I think one of the, one of the issues here for doctors in the UK is that we feel um, very attached to the NHS, that we do our training uh, in the National Health Service, uh, a lot of the medical training is subsidised. We used to be back in my day by by the government, and you feel mm-hmm. uh, an attachment uh, and a loyalty to the NHS, even though uh, it's not working uh, in the way that perhaps we would like. Um, it ha- it's driven heavily by protocols. It's very restrictive. Um, it's very difficult to introduce new ideas, new therapeutics. Things take a lot of time. Uh, but despite that, there's this kind of strong hook that we have as doctors uh, in the in the UK, and it, and it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of my colleagues uh, and even for myself to to leave and take that step. Mm. Uh, but but what I found is when you when you do that, when you when you take a step or something that you stand for, uh, that inevitably uh, things open up. And you know, I'm very happy in my own practice here. Um, I might caseload and you know it's very interesting and a lot, a lot more rewarding I would say than uh, I guess my job had been uh, for, for several years. Are you concerned about how medicine as a whole has responded to the events that have unfolded over the last couple of years? Are you, are you surprised in any way shape or form? When this all started uh, did you sort of have an idea of where it was heading? So, I mean, it has been devastating, and I think uh, it's been soul destroying um, for for many doctors, including including myself. Like you, you think that the priority of every doctor is to put patients first hmm. um, and to do things in their best interests, and uh, first of all, do no harm. Hmm. And if you're going to recommend something, then you've done your due diligence, due diligence around it. Uh, at the very least, you know, have some experience in it. But we saw uh, a, a systematic dismantling of core principles of medicine. Mm. Um, and it wasn't really being led by the doctors. This was a big top-down process. I think 
in, in, in England, um, we have government bodies, which are really extensions of the government. So we have the police force, we have the health service, they're, they're really arms of the government. Um, and so whatever the, the, the government uh, decides, so we've got politicians, um, which don't have a great reputation here in um, uh, in the UK, and I think probably across the world. And for I think you know people aren't stupid, so people don't trust politicians because you know they've proved to us time and time again that they're not trustworthy. So it's not just a um, a, a, a kind of stereotype. I think um, uh, you know, it, and we saw throughout the pandemic that uh, especially our own politicians here in uh, in the UK were um, saying one thing and doing something else. Um, uh, so, so we've seen this systematic dismantling of the core principles of medicine, and uh, that was very surprising. You don't think that you learn what 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 you learn as a doctor and and what you learn through medical school and what you try and implement by putting your patients first would be thrown out of the window because of some directive that comes through. Um, essentially government and politicians and we see that the nhs like other um, national public services here are just extensions of the government so what the government says you know the the the, the kind of the tail on the dog you know kind of wags um you know, as much as the government wants and we we saw that that uh at a higher level there was a decision to um um you know throw all these core principles of medicine out of the window mm. um and what we saw was that doctors just followed, you know, and that was that was a big shock, um, and it was extremely disappointing. And looking at my my own colleagues, you know, very intelligent people, you know, uh, most of them were senior to me, they've had more life experience, uh, very bright, um, but you know, there was no um, there was no question to doing these ludicrous things like these PCR tests or lateral flow tests or these other tests that have no basis in, in reality. Mm. Uh, but people were just acting like um, uh, to, to sheep or cattle being told prodded one way and okay, we'll do this. And then prodded another way and we'll do this. And, you know, it was just became a circus. Um, so I was, I was extremely disappointed by, by the response and in particular the doctors, because if doctors stood up for what, we pretend we stand for then none of this would have happened you know it just couldn't have happened mm -hmm. uh, but complacentness of my colleagues you know has really really got us into the mess that we've got into now and, and that's been the most disappointing thing for me do you think medicine can recover from this or do you think that it's uh, lost the trust of the people well this has had a devastating impact on the the trust and the reputation of medicine and doctors uh, because despite what the media portrays, um, there's so many people that don't trust doctors anymore because they can, people can see the truth. Uh, mm. You don't need a medical degree to be able to see the truth. Uh, and most people I would contend are intelligent and bright and conscientious. Uh, so uh, especially over time when you get told the same things. So um, you know, take the jab, for example, and that'll stop you from getting COVID. Take the jab and lots of people taking the jabs and lots of people getting COVID and then take more jabs and then they get COVID again. You know, people people aren't as stupid as the government would like us to believe. Hmm. Um, so so I think I think that the public can see what doctors have done. Um, 
and that's that's been very damaging. But I think in the midst of every crisis, there's hope and opportunity. More than hope, there's opportunity for something new to come out of this. Mm. And what we've seen in the UK are, are there's there's pockets of doctors that have got together to try and talk about a talk about what's happened, why we're in this mess, but also find try and find some tangible solutions about how we can steer the direction of medicine in a more positive um, route. Uh, and I'm part of a, a group called uh, Doctors for Patients UK. Um, and we've set up weekly uh, academic meetings to discuss uh, evidence-based medicine and concerns around where medicine has gone and how medicine can become something better than it is at the moment. Um, and that's been very encouraging. We've got about 100 or so doctors uh, oh, on a whatsapp group and and it's growing so it, it just wouldn't this wouldn't have happened if if we hadn't gone through the last few years in the way that it had and the way yeah that doctors really had betrayed patients um but this is is a great opportunity so so i am very optimistic that things can change and you mentioned uh lots of dr kaufman who's doing amazing work uh in the states and he works with other amazing doctors so none of this would be happening if uh, we hadn't gone through um, the pandemic and the response in the in the way that it happened, so uh, th there's always opportunity, there's always hope, uh, and you know that, that's why I'm trying to keep, keep keep on to. There's always a good thing that comes out of a, a bad situation, I guess. And I actually look Absolutely. at yeah, I look at this as a blessing in disguise. So um, I guess it's how you frame your perspective about things. You mentioned that there are a lot of people who just blindly followed the orders of the government without question. Why do you think that, that well, they tell us the majority of people have gone along with this and um, participated in, in the jab program? Why do you think so many people have bought this hook, line and sinker, yet there are people like yourself and I who can sort of see right through what's going on? Um, why is there that differentiation there? Do you think there's like an element of brainwashing or something going on here, or maybe we're the crazy ones and we don't see how uh, how much of a um, uh, the folly of our ways? I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, we're, we're very highly conditioned as a people. So in society, from childhood, uh, our education system, uh, our TV, our movies. You know, none of this is benign. So it's a type of conditioning which doesn't inculcate independent, free, expressive thinking, although that's what we're hearing now. You know, mm. you've got to accept me for who I am because I'm independent, I'm special and all these things. But the reality is is not aligned with what people think and feel. You know, the reality is, is the way the systems and the structures people come through. Uh, and it's, a, it's there, there's a high level of conditioning that takes place. And conditioning in what way? in a way to uh, recognize authority uh, and to listen to authority and to put your own self, individual self aside when there's any conflict with author with authority. If there's no conflict, then you can be as, as individual as you want. Uh, and and it's, it's subtle, but sometimes not so subtle. Uh, we see it everywhere, uh, the, way, the way the schools are structured, um, the way that films uh, and the messages that are in there. Uh, the advertisements and billboards you can't really escape it so so that's one level so we're as a nation where i think as a global population now because 
what we have in London, we have um, uh, in Australia and America. It's a, the same type of culture and the, and the structures uh, we're seeing this kind of mono mono-ness uh, across the world. So 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 the high level of conditioning, um, and that's very powerful, especially when you're a child and you're forming your views around the world of the world and your place and how you fit in. It, it's difficult to shake off. What, what I do, in my practice, what I do is I work with people, a lot of people who've had difficult experiences at childhood and in adulthood when they're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, they just, you know, that you just can't shake off the, the the experiences you have when you're younger. So it's so childhood is very, very crucial, very crucial aspect. Uh, but you know, once you've gone through that process, then you're quite malleable uh, as an adult. Um so so that's a I think there's different levels. The first level is the conditioning. Uh, the second level is trauma. And what we've seen is a, a systematic traumatization of, I think, global populations, especially in the West, that there's some uh, imminent uh, threat to our safety and our way of, of living. Um, for, the, for the last 20 or so years, it's been this war on terror, hmm. uh, a lot of which has been fabricated in various ways. Um, and I say this not, uh, you know, off the cuff. You know, this is an interest of mine in terms of my clinical work, in terms of my academic work. Um, it's 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 demonstrable that a lot of this war on terror uh, has been mm-hmm. fabricated. At the very least, not the narrative isn't in line, the reality isn't in line with what we're being told. Mm. Uh, but it's this this imminent threat this traumatization of the population. Um, and in the UK here, we have these levels of terror alert. Right. Uh, and they've been, they've been high, the, all the highest level for, I've, I lose track that, and the highest level says there should be, a, there's a high risk of an imminent terror attack, uh, right. terror attack uh, on the population somewhere. And so we're living under this umbrella of, of, of trauma. Uh, and when you traumatize people um, and you raise their levels of fear, you reduce their ability to think rationally uh, and to, to have free thinking. Uh, we, we, when the trauma levels are high, we rely on the more primitive emotional aspects. So conditioning with trauma, and then you throw a pandemic like this, that there's some invisible killer out there that's so deadly that you have to hide. Um, uh, you have to hide, and yeah, not only from, from, from other people, but from your own family. Um, you know, it's it's very powerful, and and I can understand some of the mechanisms involved um, that have led to um, such mass kind of acceptance of of what's gone on. I, I don't think it's a psychosis. You know, I, I hear that a lot of people talk about this mass formation psychosis. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No. You know. I, you know. I think to call the whole you know most of the world's population psychotic, I think it's uh, condescending. I think it's a wrong use of the term. Um, and it's just name calling, essentially. I, I like to think I'd like to look a bit deeper at the mechanisms underlying this. It's easy to, you know, as a soundbite to, to, to give a term like that. But uh, I think the mecha- just to understand and have a formulation around wh- why we think we've got to this stage, I think is a lot more helpful. Um, and, and on top of that, looking at doctors, again, in particular, we're even more conditioned, where I think probably some of the highly conditioned um, public servants uh, or uh, you know p- professionals in in the in the world, the medical school is highly conditioning. It 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 drums it, it dumbs you down. It you know you've got so many exams, you know you you're told what to learn, you're told how to learn it, 
um, you, you're not encouraged to, to to try and explore what medicine is, to try and develop art of medicine or a skill of medicine. I, I was at um, uh, Cambridge University uh, examinations last year. I'm an external examiner there. Uh, and I was looking at, at, at the exams that the students were doing and that they mirrored what I, what I was doing 15 years ago. Like things just haven't progressed. It's just the same level of conditioning. So, um, you know, doctors come out and, and you're kind of, you're examined out uh, but then it doesn't stop because you've got busy schedules and you've got more exams to do. Uh, and, and and before you know it, you're you're in a state where, you know, you've got a job um, and you've maybe got a family or a mortgage. And it's just you just carry on on the conveyor belt. And um, um, yes. So 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 conditioning is is my my buzzword for, uh, for trying to explain, <laughs> explain why, why, why we're in this mess. Do you also think that um there may be an element of like self-preservation there. It's like, I don't want to go and look at that scary monster under the bed because then it's going to start to bring into question everything that I learned and was taught growing up. So I'm just going to leave that over there for a while and I'm just going to continue my life like nothing's happened. Do you think there's an element of, of potentially self-preservation? Well, well, denial is a very strong defense mechanism that we have. Uh, and it's one of those primitive ones in in the sense that we, we have it as a as a child and it's 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 perhaps okay to deny things when you're a child uh because you you, you want to remain safe and secure enough to develop and not to be too anxious mm. but it becomes problematic when we employ these immature defense mechanisms these more primitive me- defense mechanisms as an adult when we're supposed to have matured and be able to deal with the world in a more productive way but what we're seeing is is denial is this uh mechanism of self-preservation that if I deny that this thing is going on, then I don't have to put myself in any degree of discomfort or dis disease disease. Um, you know, I can just carry on with my life because I think when it comes to it, most people don't want to inconvenience themselves yeah. uh, with any loss um, or anyone else, unless it's themselves or the, the, their own family directly. Um, and I, I think it's a, it's a self-fulfilling circle because you tell yourself that I need to carry on as I'm doing for my family, you know, for my kids hmm. or for whatever reasons you, you, you give yourself. So um, I think that's a, also a big, big hook as well. Uh, and I think it's difficult to to um, uh, to access some people because that's so strong uh, and uh, the subconscious drives are, are, are very powerful and in many ways. Uh, dictate most of the decisions that we make, um, but I'm, I'm hopeful that, that over time people can uh, can soften in their perspectives. Especially the more people uh, get together and the more people that normalise this 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 challenge of the of the narrative, uh, and I think that's happening. Uh, I think that's certainly happening. Moving in a different bit of a different direction now. Um... And and thank you for sharing your perspectives on all of that. I really appreciate it. Just moving in a bit of a different, uh, well, a different train of thought here. Earlier this year, there was a systematic review that was released. I think published in Nature, and it brought into question the usefulness of antidepressants uh, and talking about uh, the notion that depression may not be caused by a neurochemical imbalance or psychiatric disorders may not be caused by a neurochemical imbalance. I'm not sure if you read that paper. It was 
um, pretty well publicized. And I think um, psychiatrists and psychologists have been saying this for you know, 20, 30 years, that depression is not caused by a serotonin deficiency. It's not the, the cause. It may be the response. Did you read that paper? And what are your thoughts on the whole depression thing? And what do you think causes it? And do you think things like antidepressants might have their place? I, yeah, that, that, that's a big, hot topic. And I'm glad you, you, you've raised it. And, and the paper was uh, published by jo- Joanna Moncrief, uh, from UCL University College London, uh, and I did read it with uh, with great interest. Uh, and just a link with with what we were talking about before, you know, as a as a psychiatrist um, uh, trained in the in the UK, we were very much told and brought up in the way um, uh, of, of of understanding depression as a chemical imbalance. Now you get people who will deny that now, uh, kind of senior people, kind of in the mainstream that will deny that. Oh, you know, we, we always knew it wasn't the case, but but very much, you know, I'd kind of like to counter that, that in our training, it was certainly implied uh, explicitly uh, that uh, depression is a chemical imbalance. And that's why we give medication to 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 alter that um, imbalance in a way that's helpful. And in particular, there's been a focus on serotonin um, as a chemical that's depleted in depression. Uh, it's the f- chemical that helps reduce anxiety, makes you feel good, positive, motivated, and all those things. Um, and uh, you know, it was very much in the in the in the in the in the narrative that when you're when you're when you're a young psychiatrist, you're working in an outpatient clinic, you've got someone who's depressed, you prescribe an antidepressant, it reinforces the conditioning of uh, of the mechanism of 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 depression. Uh, and I remember as a young psychiatrist. Uh, one particular patient came and she was very anxious, very depressed, and she'd been on three or four different medications. Um, and I remember feeling quite suffocated and stuck, thinking, gosh, you know, what, what do I do now? You know, she's, you know, I don't know what to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> because the only thing we're trained in is, is drugs. It's to prescribe uh, drugs, yeah. And, and she was she was on a on a on a waiting list for psychotherapy, which was three to six months. Uh, and I just felt really stuck. And I remember talking to my senior and he, I can't remember the exact med- medication, but he said, why don't you try this or why don't you add this? Uh, and it, it, it's just, um, you know, a hodgepodge of concoctions with the hope that something will improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's pretty much uh, the mainstream psychiatric approach to depression in a nutshell. Um, and that's not changed for years. It's not changed for decades. And actually looking forward I don't see it changing anytime soon in the mainstream because everyone is committed to this. So despite having papers uh, like Professor uh, Moncrief's team, you know, there's a denial. I kind of go back to denial and self-preservation. Uh, and these are very key themes when we try and understand the world around us. Um, so so I think that that paper was, was amazing, but it, it, it wasn't new. And you're absolutely right. It wasn't the first time anyone's reported on this. If we go back... 20 years. Uh, there's reviews uh, in the in the 90s, you know, discussing this. If we go back further in the late 80s, we've got books by uh, uh, clinicians such as Sherry Rogers, you know, depression cured at last. Um, and there's a whole range of references there to challenge the, 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 the narrative. You know, a lot of people are, have known about this for a long time, but it's not been in the in the mainstream. That's that's for sure. Um, so I thought it was it was it was very important to have that reinforced again now for this new kind of generation of 
of doctors because what we what we do is we we generally discount the past you know so if something was done 20 years ago ah oh, you know we've got to see what's recent in the last few years that somehow um you know it's irrelevant what happened in the past because we're so we're so far advanced um now and we all like to fool ourselves and think that uh but but it's my contention really that psychiatry um in the west in the mainstream is pretty much stagnant in the dark ages uh, wow. And it's 50, 60 years behind where wow. the research and where the um, technology uh, and the understanding is. Um, and, and that's also another problem with the NHS that we have here. It's very difficult to check for change, to introduce new things. Mm. And there's a whole layer of bureaucracy. And you just kind of, you know, you, you kind of give up and just go, <laughs> go with what's been offered. So uh, so d- depression itself, uh, we're seeing we're seeing a lot more. Uh, people who are becoming depressed and um, a lot of that has been down to the lockdown measures that we had over the last few uh, few years um, and the restrictions on people's liberties um, and we were just told the wrong messages completely and we saw lots of people lots of people's mental health suffering uh, and the way that I like to look at mental health is is brain health so you've got the physiological aspect of the brain and you, then you've got the psychological aspect uh, and the and the physiological aspect is not unique to the brain. So you have to consider the rest of the body. So if you're if you're being told to to stay indoors, so you're not getting sunlight, if you're not exercising, you're not walking, you're not meeting people, um, you know, you're probably not eating great. Uh, but if you're stuck at home, you know, when you get into that kind of rut of, of at home and maybe Netflix or TV, what else do you do? You know, uh, there's only so many good habits you can try and try and do in the in a 24 hour period. You, you you end up doing a whole range of behaviors that are really harmful for your brain. Uh, and, what, and what you're doing is through poor diet, through lack of exercise, um, through the wrong types of stimulation, uh, overstimulation, social media. You know, constantly on our phones, uh, you're causing inflammation and harm to the brain, the physical brain, uh, and that can manifest in a whole range of different ways. Um, depression being one of them. So, so when when the brain is suffering, you know, when the brain is in agony, you know, we don't feel the pain like we do if I got a knife and and, and jab my hand. Hmm. Uh, it, it cries out and screams in a different way, and that can be depression, that can be anxiety, that can be psychosis, that can be any mood disorder. And actually, I, I would say the whole range of mental health problems are related to that are related to a sick brain Mm. Uh, and so if we if we tackle those um, factors so if we're looking at inflammation we're looking at nutritional imbalances um, we're looking at uh, hormone levels we're looking at good sleep all those these these basic parameters if we if we look at those and we can look at those in a meaningful way now and trying to help improve the health of people people's brain what i've seen and what many of my colleagues who practice in a similar way see that you know people get better. Not only do they get better, they become happier, and they become therefore wealthier in their life in in, in different ways. Uh, so so that's pretty much the, the way I conceptualize depression, and that also reflects how I how I approach depression. And uh, as far as uh, um, the conventional approach, SSRI antidepressants. Um, the, the, the studies in themselves, if you look at kind of the STAR-D study um, uh, from some time back, and a whole range of other studies, show that 
if antidepressants do do anything, they 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 help about thirty percent of people, so three in every ten, uh, to reduce fifty um, percent uh, of the symptoms. That's kind of the parameters that they have. Right. Now, you know, there's there's a question around uh, what tangible difference people notice in their lives by having a fifty percent reduction in their symptoms, but that's the parameters that they use. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no more than thirty percent, um, and that's a best case scenario. But but what I what I tend to see is that more people uh, are not responding to antidepressants and actually more people are, are, are suffering quite serious side effects from the antidepressants in a way that um, it disconnects them from from reality and their lives. And people get confused whether that's, this is my depression, that this becomes my depression. Um, but but I, I don't really find the antidepressants very helpful for anything in my clinical experience. Uh, and I, I probably spend more time helping people come off antidepressants uh, by improving their brain health and then trying to come off medication in a safe way, trying to do it in that way, that then I do starting antidepressants. You know, I, I think I'll probably you know, start, you know, started a c- couple of people maximum in the last eight, nine months on antidepressants. And that was because they, they really wanted to do that. And that's fine. I think, I, I think as a, as a doctor, it's all about giving your patients choice. So medication is always there as a choice. Um, the, the issue that I've had uh, up to now is that it, it's really the only choice given to people. Um, uh, and if we can give patients more choice, then I'm happy to work with them on on whatever they want. And uh, it's about empowering people to make positive decisions for themselves. And if people want to try medication, you know, I have nothing against that. But I'd like to give them a bit more understanding and, and a few more options. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I think that that seems to work really well. What do you use as an alternative to antidepressants then? I know you mentioned things like supporting nutrition and looking at exercise and these kinds of things. How would your treatment approach differ to say, I don't know, how you would have practiced 10 years ago? So so 10 years ago, would if, if I've diagnosed someone with uh, mild to moderate depression, uh, I'd probably refer them for some talking therapy. And again, I have issues with 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 this kind of psychotherapy, talking therapy, like it's some homogenous um, okay. uh, a kind of beacon of uh, uh, of uh, solutions. You know, it's not. You know, it, it, psychotherapy depends on so much on the, the therapist and the connection and the person that you're working with, rather than you know a hodgepodge of certain techniques or um, uh, ways to try and look at behavior and look at the past. Uh, and you know it's very unregulated. You know you can be a therapist and you can have lots of experience, but you know are you any good? You know I don't know. Right? So I I find it difficult to to refer to um, you know credible psychotherapists. So there's a few fortunately that I know, but but I guess that's a slightly side issue. So I I would I would refer um, people for psychotherapy. I'll probably start them on an antidepressant medication, and and that that's the regular kind of practice uh, right. as we have it in line with the nice guidance that we have and. In a nice guidance, um, that's a national institute for clinical excellence that set certain guidance around therapeutics in England. Um, the, the, it does play, I think, relative lip service to lifestyle factors, but in practice, doctors don't really uh, put much emphasis on that. It's like eat healthy and sleep well, uh, and and there's two reasons for that. It's probably because there's a lack of training in what healthy eating is, um, what health, what good exercise is. Like doctors don't know, you know, they're probably the worst people to advise 
on a healthy diet. Uh, <laughs> I know we're going into your your, your area um, of expertise, uh, and 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 they the most people probably to advise on exercise. And 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 another reason for that is because it's not just lack of training, but they don't practice that themselves. Yes, I don't know how many doctors you know drink kind of Coke or have a sandwich for for lunch and you know some snack or chocolate or crisp. Like doctors don't eat healthy; they don't look after themselves. So if you don't, you know, if you don't live that, then it's difficult to um, um, preach that in a way. So, um, so 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 that 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 would be the regular approach. The approach I tend to take is give people a whole range of options, but 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 start with kind of uh, their understanding. So I explain to them my the way I understand depression. Uh, I send them information some podcasts some links um some people like reading i can send them some books but most people like to watch videos uh we kind of link some of your your podcasts now for, for them um and, and so i want people to to understand what it is that they're going through and understand the approach and i think that's very important you know, what i don't like to do is tell people just do this because i say so uh, and i know best uh, and i think that's the old medicine bitch I think there has to be a degree of that. I think there's implicit understanding that, yeah, someone's coming to me because they think I know better than them. Otherwise, why would they come? You know, mm-hmm. so it's it's implied. So there's no reason to make it explicit. You know, I don't tell people just do this. Uh, I want them to understand. That's always the first. The education is always the first point. Um, and then I, I usually look at uh, their sleep habits. They look at their diet. We haven't touched... Uh, on kind of gut health which is a key aspect of brain health and uh, i think the mainstream is just kind of catching up now that you are what you eat and what you're able to absorb uh, and there's a there's a specific neuronal connection between the gut and the brain that's quite unique um and, and so gut health is the key it's very key to brain health so diet is also important so i take a history around what people eat uh, make some basic general recommendations about perhaps avoiding some of the things that are, are inflaming the gut, inflaming the brain. So gluten, dairy, soy, uh, processed foods, sugar. Uh, so pretty much things that make up 90% of most people's diet. Um, mm. So no one likes to hear that, but uh, it's difficult to heal if you're continuing to to fuel fuel the fire. Yes. Um, so, so so trying to limit people's diet as a starting point because if if when people stop eating those things that make them feel terrible um when they start putting them back in again and then uh after that period of respite you know that's enough for them to learn that this is bad for me mm. um so it's usually a trial of uh, of a type of elimination diet um i look at their sleep and try and have some uh, positive habits that they do leading up to sleep to try and help not only the duration of the sleep but also the quality of the sleep uh so that's some meditation that's having a, a bath or a shower uh, as a gratitude log a to-do list uh, using blue light blocking glasses to help reduce the impact of the artificial light just to have a healthier routine uh low level stimulation um just to help the quality and, and the duration of the sleep um, and then, then the third aspect is some nutritional supplements to help with people's brain health. And I think it's not controversial to say that most people are nutritionally deficient because mm. food isn't what food used to be. The soil 
on the planet isn't what it used to be. Um, and and th there's no controversy around that. Uh, so and, and also people don't eat as healthy as they think or as healthy as they would like. So when you put all those things together over X period of time, uh, you're, you're more than likely to have nutritional deficiencies. Um, and we need to supplement our brains to keep keep them healthy. It's like an investment. So I take uh, a supplement regime every day myself, uh, and I, I recommend that to uh, to all my patients. So there's uh, there's a particular um, multivitamin that's evidence based by a team actually in in Australia. Um, uh, written a book, Julia Rockledge, the Better Brain. Um, I read that earlier this year. It was fascinating. Uh, the work that they did with uh, nutritional support for brain health. Um, so I recommend the, the uh, a supplement that they used in their research as a multivitamin. Also recommend um, a good quality cod liver oil um, and also some uh, probiotics or prebiotics uh, to begin with. Uh, and that, that's that's a starting point. So the, these these are the areas that I like my my, my patients to to kind of orientate themselves with first. Uh, and medication is always there. Uh, uh, as an option um, and um, you know some people just want to go for that and that's that's fine so choice um, but but my approach really kind of starts off on those these basic parameters of what health what the things that contribute to health um, and it, it's quite generic I guess in a sense um, but that's the beauty of of trying to shift from this old paradigm uh, of um, you know one organ you know one problem one specific solution that would be if you take a step back that not only are you helping people's brains you're helping uh, the rest of their uh, systems and organs and their their life more generally so you know all these things help everything um, and that's the beauty of it yeah and i guess there's that whole other uh aspect of why are people eating that way in the first place because i guess everyone knows how to eat healthy right as, as a child i would tell you exactly what you need to eat and what you shouldn't eat but I guess a lot of people choose not to. Maybe they're trying to use it for comfort or something else like this, right? So um, do you find it sometimes uh, people are resistant to those changes that you recommend because there's deeper-seated seated issues which are leading them to choose those particular dietary and lifestyle habits? For sure. So when you're feeling, when you're feeling unhappy, when you're feeling grim, when you don't see a, a positive future or any future ahead of you um you subconsciously seek for things that give you some degree of pleasure mm. or some degree of control over your life uh, and food takes both of those boxes mm. that you know if, if things are out of control in your life at least you can control what goes in your mouth True. um and, and, and so it's very it's a very powerful hook so people start using food uh as a way to get a sense of control in their lives but then also to make them feel good so when something is high in sugar, highly processed, um, you know, high levels of carbohydrates, you know, they, they cause um, you know feel-good uh, neurotransmitters, you know, dopamine hits in the brain, uh, and it's very reinforcing. Uh, and it can happen on a relatively subtle level. Once you eat, maybe you don't feel as bad, uh, rather than feeling ecstatic. I don't think anyone feels ecstatic when they kind of eat junk but they may feel a bit less bad. So it's kind of quite subtle. Um, and and it just it just perpetuates a problem. So if you're trying to take something away from someone and that's their only source of um, kind of comfort, mm. kind of called comfort for, for, for those reasons, you know, it's a, it can be a, a, a big challenge. 
um, for sure. And and also the, the way kind of fast food and 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 junk food is is accessible these days is uh, also you know but one of the products from the pandemic response that everything is a is a tap on the phone away. Um, so at, at least if you went to McDonald's before, there's a higher chance that you'd be walking and you probably get some. <laughs> some some kind of uh, uh, you know try and see it in some positive light that you're 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 stretching your legs and, and you're getting a bit of exercise. But now that's that's a thing of the past where it's a tap on the phone and some poor guy on a on a scooter comes and uh, and drops off your um, your fake food. Um, uh, so so it's it's a lot more accessible. Uh, but then also the, the way that these foods are processed, you know, these companies are very intelligent in terms of concentrations of sugar assault the reinforcement that uh it makes it all kind of uh, it doesn't look so good but actually what's been put into it you know is i think quite uh quite great yeah, in that way um so so the companies know what they're doing they know how to how to make the food in a way that makes you want more and that you're never satisfied um so you, you kind of put all these to get together as societies and heading generally in a way that um is supporting people's positive food decisions and you know, probably a, a starting point will be to ban uh, all advertisement of, of mcdonald's and junk uh but again i don't see that happening anytime soon hmm. yeah it's probably a few years off dr Rajaz, i understand that you're a very busy man and you've got patients booked today uh but for anyone that's listening who uh may want to get in contact with you maybe they want to be a patient i'm not sure if you take like telehealth consultations and these kinds of things, um, where would the best place be for people to uh, find out about the work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you. So I have a website, drallyajaz.co.uk. That's D-R-A-L-I-A-J-A-Z.co.uk. So you can contact me through through the website. You can see some of the things I'm involved in doing. Um, we only touched, I guess, on, on the surface of, of some of the things uh, so there's a lot more on my website uh, and feel free to drop me a line and I'll get back to you as, as, as soon as possible. That's fantastic. Dr. Ajaz, thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak with me today. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. The ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time.